0: Okay, I think we're going to make a start. Thank you very much for coming, everyone. I'm so sorry we've chosen such a small room for this event, which uh, clearly is uh, something that lots of people want to come and talk about. So uh, apologies to those who are standing at the back. I think we are shutting the doors, so we hopefully won't get too many more uh, incomers. Um, My name's Hannah White. I'm acting director of the Institute for Government. I'm delighted you've all joined us here today for this important uh, discussion on how government can rebuild trust after the Johnson era. Um, I'm delighted that we're uh, running this event, as I said, and thank you very much to the FDA uh, for, uh, for sponsoring the event. Now, before we start, uh, just a reminder, this event is on the record. So anything you say when we come to questions, and there will be questions, and we will have a waving mic. Uh, so uh, do be thinking, as the uh, panelists are speaking, what you would like to ask uh, when we come to questions. Uh, remember that uh, it's all on the record. We'll also be tweeting uh, from uh IFG, the IFG events uh, handle. So, um, I, mean, I don't think anybody needs a, uh, a reminder why we think this is an important discuss- uh, discussion to be having. Uh, Boris Johnson's tenure as Prime Minister was marked by a series of ethical scandals, which ultimately led to uh, the resignation of, of two of his ethical advisors. But, uh, and, and ultimately the down, downfall of his government. Liz Truss has put a lot of emphasis on her own judgment, uh, her ability to tell the difference between right and wrong, and downplayed the importance of institutions, advisers, and rules uh, that have been put in place to help guide governments uh, in the past. Uh, but that approach has obviously come under some uh, pressure uh, in recent days, particularly in relation to the mini-budget. Um, So, what we want to talk about today is uh, the role of public trust in in politicians. Uh, It's probably as low as it has ever been, so what should this government do to rebuild trust in its administration uh, and in the programme of of government that it wants to take forward? Um, Do we think that personal judgement is enough, uh, or what uh, steps can be taken to to, to bolster that and to give uh, uh, the people, the public, uh, the markets competence in in government. I'm really delighted to have a fantastic panel here today to discuss these uh, issues. We have Sir Jeremy Wright, who of course uh, needs no introduction, former minister, and current member of the Committee on Standards in Public Life. Uh, We have uh, far end Dave Penman, uh, who is General Secretary of the FDA. Uh, Daniel Bruce, Chief Executive of Transparency International UK, Susan Hawley, who's Executive Director of Spotlight on Corruption, and my colleague, uh, Tim Durrant, who's an Associate Director at the IFG and uh, leads all our work on on ministers and standards in government. So I'm gonna begin by putting some questions to the panel, uh, then we'll uh, have some discussion, I'll put some uh, further discussion points and then we'll come to you for questions from the floor. So, Jeremy, can I kick off uh, to you? I mean, when we first uh, started thinking about having this event at conference, we were very much focused on the question of ethical standards in government. Of course, CSPL has put out, uh, you know, over the the years, uh, a lot of uh, important work on that question, and most recently, uh, uh, a big report which talks about underpinning uh, the UK system of ethical standards. Um, That has a whole set of proposals in it about putting regulators on a statutory basis and so on. Um, But I think, you know... As I said in my introduction, the you know, recent uh, events have, 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 have raised sort of bigger questions, I think, about how governments sustain trust in what they want to do. So I'm really interested in your thoughts uh, about what Liz Trust needs to do now to build trust in her government.
1: Yes, well, thank you, Hannah. Morning, everybody, and thank you for the invitation. Uh, I think it's probably worth starting... Uh, with the title of the report that you're talking about. So the Committee on Standards in Public Life decided to call this very substantial and extensive report Standards Matter, and that's because they do. And it's not obvious to me uh, that we've explored yet, as a society, as a political class, the reasons for that. There are the obvious reasons. It's obviously the right thing to do to have high ethical standards. But there are some more pragmatic reasons why it's a good idea, and maybe we should just start with those. Let's look at economics.
2: Uh, At the moment,
1: the UK attracts a good deal of inward investment because those who are investing think that their money will be safe in the UK because the UK government holds high standards, the UK business community operates to high standards, and that underpins the confidence of inward investors to bring money into the UK economy. If you want to uh, look, for example, at um, one specific area of the economy that I've operated in as a practitioner and also had some ministerial responsibility for, and that's legal services. People come and use the UK courts. They choose English law as a method of resolving their disputes because they believe that English, British lawyers and judges operate to high standards. So our legal services sector does well, and it does do well, largely because there is a widespread belief that it operates very high standards and therefore it's a sensible place to come and litigate your disputes. So those things are important. But there's also a question of policy effectiveness, isn't there? We've just lived through two years in which we have conclusively demonstrated that the population who are being asked to do really difficult things when it comes to COVID restrictions need to believe that the government is operating to high standards in order to be confident that they should carry on doing those things when asked to. So standards matter sometimes, not just in economic terms, but they matter in terms of policy effectiveness. Because if you're asking people to do difficult things, they've got to believe you're doing it for the right reasons and with the right motivation, or they may not be prepared to do them. And we are governed by consent more than we realize in this country. So it's important that people accept and acknowledge the government's motivation for what it does. Standards matter there too. And it's worth also perhaps saying something about political peril. So there are various things that that politicians, and particularly politicians in government, are worried about. They are, of course, worried about making bad decisions. And under a hail of well-informed criticism, being forced to change those decisions. I can't think of any immediate (laughs) contemporary examples, I'm sure there are some, But, um, but there are also those moments of political peril where what you're really worried about is whether the public are changing the view they have of you, whether the public are starting to form a different impression than the one you would like them to have, and whether you want to go back to the major days of sleaze and cash for questions through the Bernie Eccleston affair for Tony Blair through MPs' expenses, all the way through to party gate, you can see that those moments of political peril exist when people's view of you starts to change. And that is essentially a standards question too. It's whether or not people believe that you are operating to the right standards and ethical principles. So there is every reason for politicians and for governments to be concerned about standards. So the next question is, well, what do you do about it if you want to maintain high standards or improve them? And it seems to me the first thing you should recognize is that the architecture that surrounds standards in this country, the standards uh, of public life, the seven principles of public life, which I shall now impeccably recite, which are uh, honesty, objectivity, uh, selflessness, uh, integrity, accountability, leadership, and another one. And they are. So important that people have, as you can tell, internalized them and understood them and remember them. And because they know what they have to do and the framework in which they have to operate, that is a huge asset, I think, to our standards landscape. So every so often the Committee on Standards in Public Life is asked to think about changing those principles, adding one, taking one away. And we've never done so, and largely because we think it's important that that well-known architecture uh, retains its well-knownness so that everybody understands the framework in which they're supposed to operate. But um, when you come to specifics, I'll just say one thing uh, and then stop about the independent advisor on ministerial standards because that is a fundamental part of the conversation I think we're, we're going to have here. And the reason that this post matters and the reason that I fervently hope the new Prime Minister will appoint one is not only is it important to have another pair of eyes on these standards questions, and I'm not for a moment doubting the ability of any individual Prime Minister to know what's right and wrong, but sometimes when you're very close to a decision, you are not best placed to observe its ethical ramifications, and sometimes it helps to have somebody else whose advice you can rely on to help with those judgments. So I think it's an asset in decision making. I also think, let's be cynical about it for a moment, it's quite a useful piece of insulation for a prime minister. If the independent advisor on ministerial standards says it's okay and you're doing it, then you have the perfect comeback to an interviewer who says, why on earth would you do such a thing? You can say, well, the independent advisor has said it's okay. So there is a reason to have an independent advisor as long as you're doing the right things in the right way because they help to provide support for the logic of your decision-making. But several things we think as a committee and I think certainly need to change in the way in which that independent advisor (coughs) operates. First of all, it is absolutely vital, because independent is in the title, that the method of appointment of the independent advisor is beyond reproach. So I think we need to regularize that process of appointment, And we need to make sure that there are processes involved in that process of appointment that everybody can accept are legitimate. Not that the Prime Minister can't choose who they want, but, as with many other public appointments, there need to be some processes to give extra reassurance. Secondly, I think it's important that the independent advisor can initiate their own investigations. It isn't an independent advisor if they have to wait to be told by the Prime Minister who they can or cannot investigate and what decisions they can or cannot question. So important that they can initiate their own investigations. And thirdly, I think important that it is up to the independent adviser, if that's what they've been hired to do, to determine whether there is a breach of the ministerial code or not. The Prime Minister drafts the ministerial code, and the Prime Minister does now and must continue, in my view, to have the final choice and the final say on what the sanction should be, if the ministerial code is broken, because it can't be for an unelected independent adviser to decide who sits around a cabinet table or who sits in ministerial office. But I do think that especially if we're going to maintain confidence in the system, it's important that the independent adviser gets to say, yes, I think the code was broken. Now over to you, Prime Minister, to decide what to do about it. But if you allow the Prime Minister to decide whether the code was broken, then you'll find you're in a position that we are or have been in the last few months where the Prime Minister does everything they humanly can to avoid finding a breach of the ministerial code because at that point at least the only possible consequence was resignation or dismissal. So actually this is a package and we're all in favourite packages these days. This package means that what the Prime Minister gets to do is decide on the sanction without any interference from anybody else, and that they should have a range of sanctions to choose from, not just dismissal, but also apology, perhaps even fines. There could be a number of different sanctions available. It's important that we have a range, I think. But in the end, it is only the sanction they're determining. It's not whether or not the code has been broken. That, I think, will give extra confidence, and confidence is absolutely fundamental if we're going to retain all those benefits of high standards that we have a well-deserved reputation for in this country, but which is at risk if we don't maintain the systems and mechanisms that support those high standards. So I'll stop there.
2: Thanks,
0: Jeremy. Can I just follow up mm. before I go to the other um, panelists and ask you to sort of extrapolate uh, your your remarks about the importance of institutions uh, and, uh, and independent institutions in the in the sort of squarely ethical personal behaviour space into government more generally? Because I think that that's the that's one of the Questions which has arisen uh, in recent days, is how can government ensure that that it makes the right use of institutions and independence to enable it to pursue what it wants to do, uh, but to ensure that markets, the public, has confidence in that? Mm.
3: Well,
1: part of this is about transparency, and transparency is vital if you want people to have confidence that you're behaving in the right way. And part of it is about setting up the structures around you that support good ethical decision-making. So we have talked about some of those in terms of the independent advisor. I'm not gonna steal all of Dave's thunder, but I assume he might want to mention an independent civil service that at senior level and at junior level continues to deliver fearless advice to ministers. And I've served as a minister in several capacities. I can see at least one other minister or ex-minister at the back of the room. And we've all had advice from civil servants. And sometimes we agree with it and sometimes we don't. And in the end, the decision has to be ours to make because that's the right way for a democratic government to operate. But to try and constrain the way in which the advice is delivered or to try and scare civil servants into the thought that they shouldn't say what they think is not going to improve the quality of decision-making and it's not going to improve people's confidence that you're operating to the highest ethical standards. So some of this, I think is about the superstructure around you as a political decision-maker, and you need to have the confidence to know that it is your choice and you can make the decision you want to make, and that's right because you're the one accountable to the electorate in the end. But in the process of making that decision, you want the best input you can have and you want the best support in making sure those decisions are good ones. And that's about the rectitude of your decision-making, its accuracy, but it's also about its high moral and ethical standards, so I think it's partly about superstructures, which we might talk a bit more about.
0: Thank you. Susan, um, I'm going to come to you now. Um, in her leadership campaign, Truss uh, indicated that she thought the UK system of ethical standards regulation was, was too complicated. Um, she, she said, and I quote, we, you know, in our system we have numerous advisors, independent bodies and rules and regulations, and actually uh, the, the implication was that uh, what what uh, she felt was more important was the individual judgment of politicians. Um, do you agree our system is too complicated?
2: Well, I think the, inherently there is a bit of complexity here, because we're covering, with ethics regulation, a huge amount of activity. We're covering lobbying, conflicts of interest, the revolving door, uh, party political finance, uh, public appointments, nominations for honours. Uh, they're all lumped into what is ethics regulation. And on top of that, you have different actors. You've got civil servants, ministers, and MPs. So inherently, it's complicated. It's a complicated picture, and it's how it fits together. But the key question is, actually, is it working? That's the most important thing. Uh, And I think I just want to say here... Uh, a few things. I think the issue of trust is another really important reason uh, at the base of this. You know, the UK has below average trust in government of all OECD uh, countries. So just 35% of people in the UK have trust in government, which is compared to an average of 41% for the OECD. But if you take out individual indicators, the integrity indicator, when they measure trust, that gap is even bigger. So actually 62% of people in the UK think a high politician would accept a lucrative job in exchange for a political favor um, compared to 48% uh, average in the OECD. So we've got, we've got a trust problem in comparison to our peers. Uh, and I think uh, there's a huge public appetite for change and more independent regulation. We recently ran uh, some polling. I know polling can often be used to get the answer you want, but (laughs) Um, we also ran some focus groups in the Red Wall with Transparency International and the Blue Wall. And there's a huge public appetite for more independent regulation of politicians. We had 80% support for a stronger ministerial code on a statutory footing, 80% who wanted more transparency about who's meeting with ministers, uh, nearly 79% want an independent regulator adjudicating ministerial misbehaviour. So, I mean, there are all sorts of complicated things in there around constitutional issues and how we, we make that work. But I think it's important to recognise the public appetite because it might not be the issue that gets them out of bed to vote, but it is the lens through which they see a lot of those issues that they're going to vote on. Um, I think there are ways we can do better, and there aren't necessarily examples out there from other jurisdictions where they're doing it perfectly. Uh, Unfortunately, I think we have to develop our own homegrown (coughs) response. I mean, the closest probably for comparison is Canada. Canada has some really interesting uh, independent regulators, uh, conflicts of interest and and ethics commissioner. They have um, regulators on a statutory footing. Um, But they're not instantly uh, translatable to the UK regime. So we we need a, a, a homegrown solution, which is actually where the CSPL came in, and uh, the two really most important things that we can do is upgrade the system in light of what CSPL recommended, and that's about making sure that the rules are updated, that they reflect the risks. Uh, there's a you know widespread sense that actually the rules haven't kept pace with changes in government, with changes in communications. Uh, we need to make sure that the regulators are as independent as possible. Uh, And we need to make sure that the rules are complied with and that there are mechanisms uh, for making sure that they are complied with. And I hope we can come back to that in, in discussion about, you know, what's the balance between political sanctions and administrative sanctions. And then the second thing we could do is actually simplify and communicate the system better. So I think it would make a big difference if the standards regulators actually came together in a convening body and spoke more with one voice. I'm not suggesting we replace them all, but that there's more of a sense that, you know, this is who they are and communicate to the public what they're doing and and potentially bringing together in one place more the kind of rules and the norms that um, are expected of politicians beyond the big brush principles. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Dave, can I come to you now. Um, this plus another thing that she made a lot of in her leadership campaign is her ability to deliver. Obviously the civil service are the people who uh, will be doing a lot of the uh, delivering implementation of her policies. How do you think she should go about building trust with the civil service?
4: Um, well I think, first of all, one of the things I think is important to understand is, is the nature of the civil service. The people I represent are civil servants quite often at the most senior end have had a choice and they've, they've chosen to become civil servants they've done that knowing that to be a civil servant you serve the government of the day and um, that can change you will serve different ministers and um, good um, or bad your job is to give the best impartial evidence-based advice but then your job is to do whatever a minister decides and they know they willingly know that that's what they're expected to do um, and uh, quite often they could have earned a lot more money elsewhere but they want to work in public service and the civil service gives them a fascinating mm. and, and interesting uh, uh, an interesting job and so for these people you have to work really hard to destroy trust um, between ministers and, and civil servants and unfortunately I think that that's where we are and I think there are two main reasons for that and if we're going to look at what we can do about it we need to understand what's gone wrong first of all is the the kind of denigration of civil servants publicly by ministers and those around ministers now this has got significantly worse over the last few years it was always it was always there francis Maud used to have his little spats with the permanent secretary would say something publicly and everyone would be shocked and horror that a minister had said something but really around the Brexit debate. We saw attacks on the impartiality of the civil service. We saw a government that wouldn't defend it, even though those attacks were coming from the governing party. And then we actually saw, when, when when Johnson came in as prime minister, many of those people who had been attacking from outside <coughs> of government actually in government. And we've seen everything from, you know, the notes on desks um, uh, uh, from Jacob Rees-Mogg about home working, to. The shit list that appeared on the, the, the front page of the Sunday Telegraph naming permanent secretaries that were, that were going to be sacked. And, and ministers do this knowing that civil servants are unable to defend themselves. They're constitutionally unable to defend themselves. The Civil Service Code doesn't allow them to speak publicly without the approval of a minister. And I've known civil servants who are being attacked um, via special advisers and are having to go to those civil, these same special advisers to try and get permission to defend themselves. So I think that the first thing government could do about rebuilding trust is stop publicly attacking civil servants. Time and again, civil servants say to me, I'm tired of being thanked privately by ministers and then denigrated publicly as they play to the crowd. And, and probably more than any single thing, that's the issue that comes up time and time again uh, amongst our members about how government conducts itself. Mm -hmm. And the second thing which we've touched on there is about the conduct of ministers as individuals um, in the workplace. Um, uh, As we saw in in the kind of scandal that erupted around Westminster following um, uh, the kind of Me Too movement, there are times when politicians' conduct uh, falls below that that is acceptable in any workplace um, but they are not employees just like MPs are not employees and we have a process essentially of self-regulation now this is an issue that predates um, uh, 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 that even the Johnson government Theresa May changed the ministerial code to say you shouldn't bully civil servants I personally didn't think you had to spell that out I thought it'd been pretty obvious but didn't introduce any reforms to that process Uh, in relation to how actually, if you were a civil servant and you had to complain about a minister's conduct, how that would be dealt with. Um, And that has only been exacerbated by the decisions that have been taken and the incidents that have occurred since. So if you're a civil servant and you have cause to complain about a minister's conduct, about bullying or potentially sexual harassment, there's no uh, written down process. Uh, You don't know how. Uh, If you make a complaint, it's going to be investigated you've got no rights around that process. If you're unhappy with the outcome, you can't challenge it. And if you were to do that today, there wouldn't even be anyone in charge of an investigation. And Simon Case, the Cabinet Secretary, made clear in evidence earlier this summer um, to PACAC that it's not appropriate for civil servants to be conducting those sorts of investigations, yet we don't even have an independent advisor. And I have found myself in a position where... I've had to advise a civil servant who wanted to make a complaint about sexual harassment against the minister that I had no confidence that actually that would be dealt with appropriate and and the best way of dealing with it would be to raise a complaint. Um, Because we had no confidence that actually the prime minister at that time would make a decision based on the evidence rather than the politics because that's what he had previously done. So I think the two things, that we really need to see if we're going to rebuild trust with those people who desperately want that trust and desperately want to serve any government um, is to stop attacking them and introduce the sort of independent and transparent process that the Committee for Standards and Public Life had talked about and has been introduced elsewhere. The Scottish Government have introduced a system following the events around the former First Minister and following a parliamentary and independent inquiry. They've introduced a process where if a complaint's raised about a minister's conduct, it is investigated and determined entirely independently, yet the First Minister still retains the right um, similar to the the Prime Minister does here under the Ministerial Code about what a sanction would be, but all of that is determined independently. So stop attacking them and introduce a system of external independent regulation around conduct.
0: Thanks very much, Dave. So Daniel, I mean, all the panelists so far have mentioned this word transparency. Uh, Jeremy's talked about, you know, the theory of why transparency is important. Uh, Susan's talked about how the public value transparency. Dave's talked about the importance of transparency in systems in government. How does the UK actually rank in terms, you know, internationally in, in, the, in terms of transparency of its government? And uh, what more? What are the opportunities here for the for the trust government in, to sort of, to build on that to, to build? Um, uh, trust in her
5: government
6: more generally. Yeah, thanks.
5: Thanks, thanks, Hannah. Um, so in, in the interest of balance, let me offer some good news and bad news. Um, political finance transparency in the UK is is pretty good. Um, the OECD looked at this just last year, surveyed just over 40 countries, and only put uh, 14 of those in a sort of clean bill of health label, and, and the UK was among them. So uh, although We have concerns around sort of caps and controls on political donations. The transparency in terms of where the money is coming from is good. I would say that that is in large part or has in large part down the years been a consequence of the strength of the independence of the Electoral Commission here. Uh, The bad news, a couple of areas I would pick out. Lobbying transparency, who is trying to influence government and for what. We have a statutory register of lobbyists uh, in the Westminster system, it is a register of consultant lobbyists, not in-house lobbyists, and actually referring to that same OECD study from last year, the OECD found that uh, 80% of lobbying registers or their equivalent in the states they looked at did include lobbyists who were in-house, who were on the payroll of the organisations they were trying to influence government. For. Um, why is that important? Because that's where the lion's share of the industry is on the Canadian version. 83% of lobbyists are on the payroll. It is uh, 95% in Ireland and on the Scottish version of the register, which is different, it's 91%. So. We don't have that on the Westminster system for lobbying transparency. We have this woefully inadequate snapshot of who is actually uh, doing what and trying to uh, curry favor with uh, government policy. And, and you know, lo- lobbying is a healthy part of our democracy, right? But it needs to be transparent for it to work uh, well. And I have to talk about executive oversight. I, I know it's already been discussed by colleagues on the panel, but in, relative to other countries, again, Canada, as Sue points out, is a good example. There's an independent commissioner on ethics and standards issues, who, unlike the independent advisor here, does have the autonomy to launch investigations, can propose a variety of sanctions for breaches of ministerial behaviour up to the top of government. Across Europe, France, Latvia, Lithuania, um, according to Transparency International's assessment, all have stronger mechanisms of public accountability at the highest levels of government than we have in the UK. And quite simply, that is because their systems ensure that ministers and right up to the top of government have to abide by the same set of rules and obligations as all other parliamentarians and civil servants, and that there is a common statutory regulatory framework uh, across all of those groups where you have uh, independent uh, regulated bodies able to propose sanctions in Latvia, anywhere from small fines or dismissal up to proceedings that can actually lead to prison sentences for the most egregious breaches. So, you know, transparency, I would say, is important, but it it is the foundation stone upon which accountability for actively upholding public standards is built. Transparency alone isn't particularly helpful if we just chuck out bits of fragmented data that aren't particularly helpful, and then when we have full transparency around a suspected breach of of, of ministerial standards or, or something similar, but no recourse to a robust mechanism to uphold those standards and for there to be consequences for failures of standards, then the system doesn't work properly. And the electorate noticed this, as Sue's research has pointed out and as our focus groups that we did together across the political spectrum showed an overwhelming majority of voters want stronger rules and independent oversight.
0: Thank you very much. And it's a subject I've thought a lot about in, in, in respect of institutions too. I think that institutions sometimes undervalue the extent to which their transparency gives public co- confidence in them, particularly Parliament. Um, Tim, uh, we think a lot about the effectiveness of government at the Institute for Government. Um, can you talk to us about our, our, our key thoughts around uh, the role of trust in making government effective?
7: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think to pick up on, on some of the points that, that Sir Jeremy made earlier, it's about giving the government a licence to operate. If, if people trust what the government is about, if they believe what ministers are saying they want to do then they will work with the government it was particularly important during the pandemic you know the government was asking people to make these incredible sacrifices place huge restrictions on their their individual freedoms and people did it because they believed the messaging they thought well this is most people did it because they think this is this is what we need to do to to work together to to solve this problem at a national level and I think if that it's it's very easy to lose that trust and very hard to regain it Um, I think the the problem perhaps that the government has now is there have been so many kind of knocks to that trust over the last few years, um, we've talked about some of the, the scandals over the last few years, that there's a, it kind of grows into a sort of a general sense of mistrust and a kind of uh, a view that well government isn't there for me, government doesn't get how I see things, government isn't doing what I want it to be doing and that is bad for the individual government. I mean, I don't know if anyone listened to the Prime Minister on today this morning, but the first question she was asked was, they recorded the interview yesterday, will anything have changed between this interview and when it's broadcast? And of course something had, because they brought forward the date of the the fiscal event by a month. You know, if that's your first question at your party conference today program interview, it's it's a big challenge for a Prime Minister to come back from that, I think. So she and and her top team need to be thinking about how they, you know, rebuild trust in, in what they say and as jeremy pointed out you know that matters to the markets it matters to kind of uk plc as well as a sort of democratic point of view but i think that there's that wider question about what this does to without wanting to be kind of too highfalutin what it does to the health of our democracy if people don't believe that the government is going to react to what people care about then do people just get turned off fewer people vote there's lower turnout parties you know are more incentivised to go after particular viewpoints rather than representing a wider view across the whole country. And that, I think, ultimately, is bad for all of us, really. So I think this stuff, it matters on a day-to-day basis of government getting its business done, but it also matters at a kind of higher, more perhaps, sort of philosophical level.
0: Thanks so much, I think I'm going to forgo my chair's privilege and go straight to audience questions because I think there's so much, so many interesting uh, different points that have been uh, made by the panel. I'd like to give everybody the chance to to raise their questions. So, Penny, my colleague, has uh, the microphone here. Could you come first to this gentleman here in the corner? Thank you. We'll take three questions at a time. Thank you. Um, uh, oh, and if you wouldn't mind saying who you are and where you're from, <laughs> I'm, you. I'm
8: Simon Marley. I'm a retired uh, IT person. Um, It's my view that um, the the biggest loss of trust in Boris's government was caused by the the Partygate scandal. And in my view, that was um, a civil service culture problem. I think the civil service have a culture of drinking, and I think the Conservative Party took the blame for that. And so my question is, is the civil service going to change? Are they going to stop this drinking culture and uh, clean their act up? Thank you
0: behind
8: you penny thanks uh ian potts i'm an ex councilor well, for many years standing i've been around for about eight years now um i, I take tim's point uh, and i think it's important it's very easy to lose trust it's very difficult to build it up again and in an attempt to build up i think you've got to go further than the minimum so what i put to sir jeremy is, is is what extra can be done beyond what you think is is necessary to really encourage people to trust government again.
0: Thank you and there's a gentleman in the back row
8: there. Thank you, Uh, my name is Malcolm Dunn. I'm just an ordinary party member from the Cotswolds. Um, The panel implied that um, loss of trust in government is something that's really only happened in the past few years, but you know one can look at many examples, for example 20 years ago that a prime minister was accused of lying to get us into a war and a civil servant died as a result of the implications of those of those lies. Um, My question is were we polling trust in government then and has there been a significant difference in in the results from the days when when Blair was running was running what appeared to me to be a rather dishonest government. Then, thank you. Uh,
0: so we have Simon's question about uh, the civil service culpability for Partygate. Uh, Ian on um, the how to go further than the minimum, uh, and Martin asking what the uh, sort of long-term trajectory is on this. Um, I think I'll start with you, Dave, on the civil service. Yeah, you, would.
4: Um, <laughs> Yes, on, on Partygate. Um, I mean, I was a civil servant, um, and while I was in the civil service. Um, over 20 years ago, alcohol was banned um, in most departments. Um, I think what we saw with Partigate was an issue about number 10, not the civil service. I, um, over, the, over that period, took phone calls from dozens of journalists almost every day who were trolling around trying to find examples in other government departments. I'm not saying there, aren't a leave, you know, there isn't a leaving do or a glass of wine, but in terms of the sort of stuff that came out around the Partigate stuff, um, that was clearly an issue about number 10 and I think we also have to look at do we think that that's what was happening when Theresa May was Prime Minister was it, was it always number 10 or like that or did it feel like actually it was the nature of that particular government and number 10 but one of the issues here is about what are the consequences for that in terms of gate because it's clear for civil servants what the consequences are because civil servants will be subject to the same law of the land as everyone else has, and then as employees subject to potential discipline in relation to any issues and their conduct. Where is the similar process for ministers who are involved in this, whether it's the Prime Minister or other ministers? There isn't a similar process, and what we've said all along is that everyone has to be accountable for their conduct and what they did, whether that was breaking the law or in terms of um, uh, breaking the standards that was accepted to them as employees. But that accountability has to be proportionate and fair. And everyone has to be accountable, not just civil servants but also ministers. And that's where we see this failure of a process in terms of independently looking at the conduct of elected ministers uh, about issues that happen in the workplace in the same way as civil servants are subject to it.
0: I don't want to obviously uh, constrain anyone from answering any of the questions they want to answer, but I'm thinking that Susan and Daniel can do uh, the question on sort of trends in trust. Susan, do you want to kick off?
2: Yeah, I mean, I was actually, I was looking at this this morning, and it's a really, really good question, and it was something I'm really pleased you raised, because actually the, the last time trust was this low in government was just after the Iraq war, and I think uh, that you're absolutely right, this is not a party political issue. And I think we have to really find... And this is why institutions like the CSPL are so important. We've got to find a cross-party way forward with this because the, one of the reasons why... If it just becomes a political battering ram, you know, they're all corrupt. You know, basically, most ordinary people don't think that. They think it's all politicians are corrupt. It doesn't. It's not just the Conservative, It's all politicians, and you undermine trust in politicians even further. Uh, so it, it's a real issue, and that's why we have to find some kind of way to move beyond that kind of weaponising of, of corruption. Um, and, and I think the Blair years were a really, really good example where people think, no, that you know they're not going to be any different. You know, that's what happened. Uh, you know, we had a, you know an illegal war, and like you say, the you know lies about you know, weapons of mass destruction. And I think the one last thing I want to say just related to what Tim said was, I don't know if anyone went to the more in common polling yesterday, but if you look at some of their polling around democracy, what is really alarming is that you're getting up to nearly 50% of people who are really disaffected and are drawn towards non-democratic, autocratic, authoritarian responses. Uh, And this is part of the picture. Uh, So we have to find some way forward which maybe cuts into having ambitious responses but
5: (laughs) well quickly on the last two two points really on 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 the trust issue and and what has happened in the past i also think it's worth bringing to mind the uh, cash for questions saga back in uh, john major's government um what happened as a result of that committee on standards and public life was set up and the nolan principles were established so there was constructive reform Um, the same is true after the mp's expenses scandal changes were brought forward i think what has been rather challenging about recent times and particularly the Johnson administration is that the opposite has been true. Uh, I was uh, shared in probably what was a degree of frustration from members of the CSPL two days after they launched Standards Matter 2, on well, the day it launched, government said it would respond in due course to this very sensible seminal report. Two days later we had the Owen Paterson vote in the House of Commons, and suddenly there was a sense of urgency that we had to completely reform the MP's standards regime, which the CSPL had been found to be one of the stronger elements of the standards regime um, already, so there, there are some differences that I think are worth, worth, uh, worth pulling out there and on the, the gentleman's point here on going further than the minimum, that is absolutely necessary in our view you can't look at all of the recommendations from CSPL, from the Board and Review, as a kind of smorgasbord of things that you might want to pick off and put on your plate for reform. Good example for me of that is that the latest version of the ministerial code has the ladder of sanctions in it that the CSPL recommended, and government at the time was like, hurray, we've implemented the CSPL recommendations. Well, no, you haven't. You've implemented one of the 34. You have to do all of them um, for it to work.
0: Jeremy, I imagine you have um, thoughts on all those questions. I'm particularly interested, though, in, in your thoughts on the, the question around the civil service, um, from your experience having mm. worked, worked with the civil service and, and, and Dave's uh, response to that.
1: Yeah, uh, um, on, on that one, um, I think Dave is broadly right. I, I didn't come across a huge culture of drinking in the civil service, I have to say, when I was a minister, and I was a minister in three different government departments. Um, but. Uh, every profession, every trade where you're under pressure has some people who drink too much to cope with the pressure and therefore it would be foolish to suggest that there aren't some civil servants who drink too much. There are frankly some politicians who drink too much as well and that includes ministers who are making decisions, not, I hope, while they're making decisions. Um, But in the end, what I think went wrong in Downing Street uh, during the Johnson administration was that even if you're right, and that there were a large number of civil servants, political advisers too, who thought that what it was right to do was to have a party every so often when everyone else in the country wasn't able to. I think you have to ask, would they have done that if they believed that the Prime Minister fundamentally disapproved of that kind of behaviour, and if he'd found out about it, there would have been very serious consequences for the individuals concerned? And I rather suspect the answer to that is no, they didn't think that, which is why they felt able to do it. And therefore, in the end, everybody's accountable for their own actions, but leadership has a responsibility for setting the tone, and the tone that was set was the wrong tone. And that, I think, led to some of the behavior being permitted that really shouldn't have been permitted. Now, you can, I think, allocate some responsibility to senior civil servants for that, and and I'm sure Dave wouldn't suggest otherwise, but also, I'm afraid, to political leadership that has to set the tone. Um, On the question Mr. Potts asked about whether you go beyond what's necessary, I I completely with Daniel on this. I, I think it is necessary to do more than the minimum, and it's certainly necessary to put in place the whole package of measures that are proposed to you as a package, and that's why I said earlier, what the CSPL did was say to the Prime Minister, to the government, look, we think you can improve and enhance the ministerial code and the superstructure that exists around it, and there are some benefits to you in that, as well as, to some, uh, as well as some constraints. But you've got to have both. And if you want the right to decide, not just that a breach of the ministerial code automatically means you've got to lose a minister, regardless of how serious or how trivial that breach might be, and we didn't think that was sensible, because there are some less serious breaches of the ministerial code that really shouldn't result in resignation. And you avoid, as I say, prime ministers tying themselves in knots trying to avoid saying there was a breach of the ministerial code at all, when there clearly was, because they knew that the only consequence that could follow would be the loss of a minister they didn't want to lose. So sensible to have that uh, scale of sanctions, but only if you're prepared to accept that it's your job as Prime Minister to decide the sanctions, but not your job to decide whether there's a breach of the ministerial code in the first place, which has to be done by somebody outside government in order for it to have credibility with the public and we can only reinforce what we've all said about the importance of that credibility. But the reason I don't think that you can simply say, well, let's go for shock and awe then. Let's do absolutely everything we can possibly do to constrain our politicians, just to make sure that the public are confident they're doing things properly, is that you will throw several babies out with a lot of bathwater there. And so, um, as I said, we think the right balance, the CSPL, we think the right balance in the ministerial advisor... Uh, was to say the independent advisor should decide on breach, and the independent advisor should, by the way, be able to initiate investigations when they think it's appropriate to do so, but the Prime Minister has to retain the ability to decide sanction. And that's because the Prime Minister is democratically accountable in the way that the independent advisor is not, and the Prime Minister has to carry the can for who they have in their government. So that's the balance you strike. Let me give you one other example where um, you might say, Let's throw everything at this just to make sure the public are confident, but I think you'd lose something in the process. We had an interesting argument um, in the preparation of Standards Matter and subsequently about um, public appointments. So um, at the moment, uh, a public appointment will be uh, processed through a structure of committees and hearings and recommendations, eventually put to a minister whose final decision it is, And the minister can say, yes, I agree with that recommendation, I'll appoint who you say, or at least I'll appoint someone on the list of people you say are properly appointable. But the minister retains the right to say, actually, I'm not going to pick any of those people, I'm going to pick someone else. Now, um, you could argue, in order to give maximum public reassurance, that that should never be allowed. That a minister should only ever be allowed to appoint somebody who's on the committee appointable list. But then I think you have to ask yourself, who draws up that list? Whose job is it to say whether someone is appointable or not appointable? And the answer is, it's not someone who's democratically accountable to you as the public. The politicians are democratically accountable for the choices that they take, and therefore this is really a question of where power in a democratic society ought to lie. And it ought, in my judgment, to lie with the people who are democratically accountable for its exercise. So in my view... The right balance is to say to a minister, look, if you want to appoint somebody who the committee of appointments has said isn't a suitable candidate for the role, well, that's your choice because you're democratically accountable and it's your power, it's your decision to make. But you're going to have to explain yourself. And that means you're going to have to go before a select committee and you're going to have to explain why you chose to reject the recommendation uh, of a series of people who the committee thought was appointable and went for somebody else entirely. Um, So accountability, transparency, all of those things have to be present. But we also, I think, in these judgments have to remember where power needs to lie in the end. And power in the end needs to lie with the people who are accountable for its exercise, not with people who are not. And that includes civil servants, who aren't asking for it, by the way, and it includes those who serve on perfectly reasonably and rationally and productively serve on committee structures whose job it is to point... To recommend appointments to ministers, but they are recommending; they are not deciding. And I think that's the right balance in a democracy.
7: Tim, <coughs> I just wanted to pick up on a, a couple of points that, that were raised there, and I completely agree with what Jeremy is saying about you know the, the 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 power has to reside with the democratically elected, and and I don't think anyone in this debate is suggesting otherwise. I think you know everyone agrees that that's how we want our, our democracy to continue to function. Mm-hmm. Um, I also want to kind of reiterate what Jeremy is saying about the baby in the bathwater there are so many incremental changes that can be made in this space and actually yes the the updated ministerial code which set out the fact that there is a range of sanctions available that was a step forward we should welcome that we should celebrate that that is a good thing but that isn't enough you can keep going you can do more I think in the UK we have a we have a habit of kind of perhaps tearing our hair out and saying isn't it all awful aren't we bad at this actually as Sue said there aren't that many countries around the world that have got a better idea of how to do this you know we There are strengths and weaknesses in the UK system, and we should be proud of the fact that we, at least in theory, have the independent advisor role. We have uh, the CSPL. We have um, the Advisory Committee on on Business Appointments. There are ways that these things can be improved, but we should recognise that we are at least having this conversation and are quite good at this. And just one thing I want to talk about in terms of going beyond the bare minimum. I think actually in some cases it's about bringing things up to the bare minimum. So one of the CSPL recommendations was about giving uh, the ministerial advisor and the ministerial code a basis in legislation. That's quite controversial in some areas, in, in sort of some groups, but actually all that would be doing is setting ministers on exactly the same basis as the people who work for them. So civil servants, there is a code for civil servants, that exists in legislation, or the requirement to have a code exists in legislation. Special advisors, their code, the requirement to have it exists in legislation, but the code for ministers is just the property of the Prime Minister and he or she can do away with it if they want. So all setting a requirement to have a ministerial code in legislation would do would bring ministers to the same floor as civil servants and SPADs. It's not asking for the earth.
0: Thanks, Tim. Let's get one more round of questions in. Um, This lady here in the front.
6: Hi there. Um, Bethan Davis. I work with Virginia Crosby. Um, I'm interested... Nobody's talked about um, the role that the media has had to play in in all of this. Um, And also, coming out of that, whether there's a risk that we put so much procedure in place that we completely slow up the ability of anyone to make a decision... Um, I think we saw in the pandemic that we responded to that really quickly and now questions are being asked about the decisions that were made then, but they were made with speed for a reason. Um, And I'm just interested in in avoiding, you know, those kinds of issues. Hello, I'm Tina Stoll. I'm the former minister that Jeremy was referring to uh, at the back of the room, now with the chair. If I may, Hannah, I just wanted to see if I could make a connection from this debate to the one we had yesterday, uh, on which uh, I was a a panel member, and that was about how the civil service can um, be better, and our focus was about the accountability of civil servants, and my point was very much about the mindset of accountability, because I do very much uh, share... Uh, the points that have been made by uh, Jeremy in uh, his contribution today but one of the points I made uh, yesterday uh, and this goes back to the to the question of um, the length of w- where this where this trust issue started and how it's developed is um, is uh, that you know if we look back to 2016 and uh, and the referendum result, and for a lot of people who voted in favor of leave doing so because of their frustration with the way in which the country was run um, and things not operating in the way that they felt was uh, meeting their expectations, the absence of any accountability by the leadership of the civil service as part of the government, albeit in a very different way, to um, to that level of frustration, and then the uh, performance of, uh, or the, the way in which uh, the government both at official level and, um, uh, you know, in Parliament and so on, so on in the years that followed, that too has contributed to a, a failure or fall of trust of the public in, in government. And I just wonder whether there's any sense of accountability beyond uh, the ministers for that situation and how that needs to be tackled if you are to restore trust in government.
0: Thank you. There's a gentleman in the back corner who's been uh, trying to get in for a while.
3: Uh, thank you, Peter Munro,
5: Transparency International, but asking a question from a perspective uh, of a former role of mine. Um, we've talked about you know, institutions, uh, parliamentarians and ministers,
3: but I'm really interested in uh, the role of whips' officers in this. Um, I think that it's, WIPs have a very important administrative function, and I think on their best day they can do some good stuff, but on their worst day I think that is what makes the headlines. Um, so
5: just keen to get any thoughts from panellists on whips' officers in this discussion.
0: We'll just take one last one
3: at the back now. Hi, I've got a question about uh, Liz Truss's. Sorry, Paul Suddin, BBC News. um, Liz Truss's decision or seeming decision uh, not to appoint an independent advisor on ministerial interests. Um, What what does this say about Liz Truss and what does it mean for the government? Um, I'm interested in Jeremy's view on this in particular. Thank you. you.
0: So we've got four questions there. Bethan on the role of the media. Baroness Stoll on uh, the civil service um, accountability for loss of trust in government, uh, Peter's question on the role of the Whip's Office, and uh, the question which uh, we, we've been uh, discussing a little bit already on uh, the advisor on ministerial interests. Um, Jeremy, do you want to kick off?
1: Yeah, shall I start at the end and work backwards? So, um, uh, Peter, I think um, I might be wrong, and as you know better than anyone, events move fast, and I haven't heard the news this morning. So, but as far as I know, the Prime Minister has not said she will not appoint an independent advisor. She simply hasn't confirmed that she will, which means she's still thinking about it. And that's fine, and I don't think any of us, even those of us on the CSPL, would claim that we have a monopoly of wisdom on the structure, and it may be that there's something even better than an independent advisor on ministerial interests that we could have to give all the reassurances we've all talked about this morning. But something has to be there, in my view. I don't think you can simply rely on the instincts of a Prime Minister, however good they may be, to give the public the sort of reassurance that we're all agreed the public ought to have here. There has to be some form of external input. And as I say, I think there needs to be some form of external input, not just in the form of advice, but also with the capacity to take decisions on breaches of the ministerial code and the ability to take decisions on what does or does not need investigating in the first place. So call it an independent advisor or don't, up to you, but there has to be somebody or something that fulfills that role, in my view. Um, then on the, on the whips office, well look, I will confess, I was a whip for five years in government and in opposition. So I've been a whipper and a whippee. And, um, and, and I'll, I'll simply say this, look, I mean, there's, there's an awful lot of mythology about whips uh, and, awful lot of uh, talk about the dark arts, that of course the whip's Office fully encourages because um, it, it helps them in their work. But I don't think there are very many dark arts, actually. And I can only say how I did the job, I don't know how others do it, but I found that actually pinning your colleagues up against the wall and threatening them with the end of their career really worked, actually. Um, you're far better trying to persuade them, that, yes, you're far better trying to persuade them of the merits of the government's case. Um, but, uh, but actually, there is a pro-democratic argument for a Whip's office, and it's this. Um, every one of my parliamentary colleagues will have days when they believe that they've been elected by their electorates in their constituency because of who they are. They're all wrong. There is a tiny minority of the votes any of us gets, which are cast for us as individuals. The vast majority are cast because we were the Conservative candidate in the election, and the electorate decided that they wanted a Conservative government. And therefore, we need to remember that when we arrive for our first day at Westminster and start legislating. And occasionally, some of us forget. So the Whip's Office is to gently remind you that you were elected as a Conservative on a Conservative manifesto, and the public back home will rather expect that when they voted for you, they thought you'd show up and support that manifesto. So when it comes to manifesto promises, things the government has set out in an election campaign it was going to do, I think it's perfectly legitimate for a government in good order to maintain a mechanism which can persuade its MPs to continue to support the manifesto promises they got elected on in the first place. That's what the Whips Office should be there to do. It should go no further than that, um, but it should be there to do that. There is, by the way, and also much less well-known role that the Whip's Office carries out entirely privately, which is to support individuals in times of need. And you only really know, if you've been on the receiving end, um, what that involves, and you only really know if you've been on the receiving end just how valuable that can be. But politics is a high-stress profession, we were talking about that earlier on. And not every individual copes as well as they might. And sometimes the Whips Office, without publicity, because everybody wants to know what's going on in the lives of members of parliament, um, it's not always appropriate that they should. And sometimes the Whips Office needs to play a role in supporting individuals in what can be a very difficult time. So um, I'm a fan of Whips Offices, so long as they behave as they ought to. Um, And I think there is actually a pro-democratic argument for their existence, which many people don't initially think of when they think about the role of the Whips. Um, I'll leave um, Tina's point to to Dave and others who are sure will want to to speak about that and then just come back to Bethan's point about the media. Um, I I do think that there is a risk, as you say, that we are so petrified of the criticism that government will get for its decision making that we hedge it around with the sort of restrictions that make it impossible to make a sensible decision at all. There is a risk of that. I would say we're a very long way from it at the moment. And all the things we've been talking about, and I'm with Tim on this, are really about just trying to institute sensible mechanisms to make sure that we don't fall below the required standard, which it's possible for any politician, however well-meaning to do, and we need to, to give them the support to make sure that they do that. It's also, I think, not right to say that a decision taken to high ethical standards might be a worse decision than a decision taken without them, or worse, invariably, it will be better. Um, The exception, though, is when you are under very, very uh, high pressure of time. And so when you look at COVID, and this is, again, a conversation we've had at CSPL, well, what, what do you say about all of the systems and processes for good procurement that you would apply in normal times, perfectly sensibly, but which you don't really have time to apply if you want to get PPE into the hands of doctors and nurses when you're facing a large and spreading pandemic? And in those circumstances, I think to describe it as corner-cutting would be wrong, but short-circuiting some of those procedures may be appropriate. It might be the right ethical thing to do too, because ethics is very rarely a straightforward choice between black and white. It's usually a blend of considerations in which you try and reach the most sensible conclusion. And ethically, I'm not sure what would have been right to make sure we ticked every box in the procurement process to keep that PPE away from the people who needed it for any longer than necessary. But does that mean you abandon all standards? No, of course it doesn't. And you have to keep in mind why you're doing the job you're doing as a minister. You're doing it to improve the condition of the nation and the people you represent. And if you are always doing that, you should expect high ethical standards to be applied to every decision. So I think it's a question of whether you're talking about standards, which must always be there, or whether you're talking about processes that sometimes you have to find another way of delivering in times of very great pressure. It doesn't happen very often, but I think COVID was a good example of where it did. And they, the inquiry that's just underway today will obviously look at whether or not we got that judgement and that balance right, um, but I think processes sometimes need to change when you're under pressure, um, but standards never should.
0: I think that's a really interesting point, and, and one of the things we've thought about a bit at the Institute is how you make sure that at the point at which the pressure lifts, the process gets restored, because it can be quite easy to get into habits and for things to go on for too long. Um, Susan, did you want to come in there? Can
2: I just quickly say something on the independent advisor? Uh, My understanding from... uh, Actually, Heather Wheeler made an announcement to Parliament that there will be an independent advisor. It's just about getting round to it. Uh, But the the language did suggest it wasn't... uh, uh, you know necessarily a, a priority uh, i think there are two things with that um one of them is you know it, the independent advisor the test will be whether it's in place by december because that is when the next six month round of ministerial interests needs to be published um, and the other thing to say is that uh, john penrose who was the anti-corruption champion launched a five-point integrity plan during the leadership um contest in which he called for Uh, the appointment of the independent advisor in the first 100 days. So I think that will be the test of whether, you know, by early December, uh, the independent advisor is in place. Just a a quick other reflection. I think the the accountability question, uh, what's really interesting coming out of the panel, I think coming out of CSPL's work and and, and a lot of work in the spaces, is actually about where the accountability gap is. Um, And I think this question of, who should ministers be accountable to, uh, is is in a way a bit unresolved, because of course they are accountable to the electorate, but is once every four or five years enough to make sure that ethic, ethical standards are upheld, or does there need to be greater accountability to Parliament, for instance? So I think what's coming out of the Committee on Standards about whether MPs and ministers should have more uh, similar rules around conflicts and, uh, and declarations, I think, is a, a really, really important question. Um, and I, I always, you know, would love to catch up with you, So, Jeremy, about how the CSPL married the idea of having statutory regulators with some of the critique that's coming back to that response, which is it's completely unconstitutional, uh, it would bring in the courts into Parliament, and there are all sorts of uh, problems with that. But just, and one very, very fine thing, and then I will shut up, is that the anti-corruption strategy, Nigel Boardman very helpfully said, you know, there needs to be a new anti-corruption strategy, and it needs to have a very strong public integrity element. Um, and I think that's something that, you know, you know t- transparency and ourselves are, are waiting to see that process get started, because we do need a new anti-corruption strategy, and it would be very helpful to get a new anti-corruption champion as well. <coughs>
5: Okay, yeah, on uh, no. th- Thank you. On, on Paul's question, um, I think uh, the Prime Minister just before the uh, leadership election concluded had said that she would want to carefully review uh, the role of the independent um, advisor. It's reassuring to see that she's suggesting it will be in place somehow. Um, I would really caution against another long-winded extensive review that uses a lot of time and resources and public money to decide what that role should actually look like and the powers that it should have. I think we know the answer to those questions already in terms of its independence and it being on a statutory footing uh, based upon the CSPL and and other recommendations. Um, Just very quickly on on Bethan's points on the, the role of the media. I mean, I would hope a sign of our healthy democracy is, uh, is an uncomfortable relationship between uh, the media and, and parties of government and, and opposition, uh, not, a, not a comfortable and, and easy one. Um, I think there are actually some reforms that we um, would advocate for that would make some of your concerns actually easier in terms of process. Um, they're, they're a little bit technical, but things like ministerial meetings data MPs' expenses, peers' expenses are all in quite clunky analog formats at the minute. They're not in easily machine readable formats, which is a real pain for journalists when they're actually trying, and others, when they're actually trying to go through them and and, and use it. Ministerial meetings data is particularly problematic. We actually, Transparency International, set up an online platform which you're very welcome to use called Open Access, which is does what it says on the tin, it's it's easily searchable data that we spend days and days and days going through all the ministerial meetings returns to then put a quarterly update on so you can search by department, by minister to see who's been meeting who and for what. We do that because government does it. We will continue to do it out of the goodness of our own hearts uh, until government comes up with a better system. Um, So I think there are efficiencies to be found in the transparency regime that can actually uh, as well reduce some of the risk around everything just getting totally gummed up um, as well.
4: Yeah, um, I mean I start with that point about the accountability of civil servants. I mean civil servants advise ministers to say, that, that's, that's the nature of the beast. Ultimately civil servants are accountable for that advice to ministers, and ministers are accountable to the public for their decision making. I mean the idea that you would look at the civil service and say it was somehow decisions that the civil service took, that led up to the disgruntlement that that led up to to Brexit, or that actually what followed the Brexit referendum was a failure of politics rather than a failure of civil service advice to ministers, post-Brexit referendum, I don't think is the reality. Um, uh, All of those issues that people are frustrated about are about political decisions. Now obviously civil servants get things wrong, because everyone gets things wrong, um, and they're accountable for that. But I think if you're looking at those big issues, then the reality of it is it's about a series of political decisions and um, going back many years and decades that have led to them. Uh, those have been informed by advice from the civil service, but we don't know what, what that advice said and we don't know what the decision made. I remember talking to a senior civil servant who was talking about a minister who didn't have, shall we say, the best public reputation for competence. And that this civil servant was going about because he said he's a really good minister to work for. Uh, uh, he listens to advice. And um, we sit down, he's very respectful of it, he completely ignores it and makes a decision almost every <laughs> single time, the reverse of what I think's right, but he provides absolute clarity around that decision and I know exactly what his decision is and I know what I've got to go and do even though I fundamentally disagree with it. Now that's the reality of our democratic system and that's, that's the job of civil servants advising and, and ministers to, to make decisions. <coughs> But obviously, civil servants have to be accountable for that advice to ministers. I think that's where the accountability lies, rather than some kind of uh, uh, public um, trial around what civil, what civil delay servants delay. done. Delay delay. <laughs> <laughs> because, say, and a couple of other points about, about whips' offices. I, I, I will, you know, I understand that point about democratic processes. But if you look on issues around the conduct of MPs none of the parties came out um, particularly well around how they were dealing with accusations around conduct of MPs, and a series of independent investigations pointed to how the parties, including the Whips' offices, dealt with, dealt with these issues. And I think that's, that's the concern that there is still, I think, in Parliament. If you look at some of the evidence that's continually continuing to come out um, uh, from Parliament, about whether that, that, um, uh, uh, the, the regulatory framework in parliament is strong enough. There's some good stuff coming out of that. But also, in particular, whether the parties really have got, it, uh, uh, have got it right and how they deal with it. And my final point about the media, I would say I talk to journalists almost every single day. And I have to say, I know this is not a popular view, I think they're really good. I think I talk to journalists of, of all political persuasions and newspapers that that support the government or against the government. And almost all of the ones that I deal with, which are the main kind of political journalists, are trying to do the right thing. They are doing the kind of best of what journalism is about, about speaking truth to power, about holding um, ministers, um, uh, politicians of all colors, and governments to account. And I think they're really impressive, to be honest, in the main, you know, not everyone, you know, and some are, some, um, uh, you know, are, are, you know, are, are kind of dominated by a political viewpoint rather than um, necessarily facts. But in the main, I think the media do a really, really good job in terms of holding um, um, uh, governments to account. And when you see periods of time when the opposition are not doing that, as they should, you know, regardless of the, of the colour of government, then a good quality independent press is there, is there to do that. And I think most journalists, regardless
0: of the people they work for, will, will do that. Can the, the question from Baron Stoll, because I, I totally accept you know, the constitutional reality of, you know, as you say, uh, civil servants advise, ministers uh, decide, but is there more the senior civil service should be doing to have this, this as, 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 she, as she puts it, this, this mindset of accountability to the public? Is, are there other ways in which um, you know, the civil service could be made better accountable uh, by a parliament? where there could be uh, sort of greater transparency, for example, around the policy advice that, that's been given to ministers. Uh, you know, should we just be satisfied with the system as it is, or is there more the civil service no. could be doing?
4: I, I mean, I, I think I'm in favour of, you know, if you're a senior public servant, then you that accountability in terms of, of to the public, I, I, I absolutely, I think, they, I think they could go further. I think, but that, that means, you know, if, you, if you're a senior <coughs> civil servant, And essentially you're going into a lines then of some select committees where their job is really to try and embarrass you for for their own political ends rather than what a select committee should do i mean we've had civil servants told to swear uh, on the bible right about whether they're telling the truth and i raised with margaret hodge who was obviously a a very vociferous committee chair about some of the comments she made about that her, her committee made about civil servants and she said well at the end of the day it's theater Right. Now if that's what accountability means, I think that's the difficulty. So if you want that greater accountability, I think we need to look about how you would do that. What does that actually mean? And ultimately there's a big issue there about the confidentiality of advice from civil servants to ministers. And if you get below that, that's fine. A civil servant can say this is what I advised, but what's that going to mean the next time that they're trying to have a difficult conversation? So I think we need to be careful about this, that, that we, we, you know, this sense of what accountability actually means doesn't actually get in the way of how government operates. And I think that greater accountability through Parliament would probably be welcome by more civil servants if they had confidence that Parliament actually were not just going to be able to play political games and potentially end people's careers, you know, by the kind of the, the, the nature of some of the evidence sessions that they're asked to take part in.
1: Well, only briefly. I mean, just to follow on from that, I mean, I think, A, it's worth recognising that if you talk to any permanent secretaries, they don't exactly look forward to their appearances at the Public Accounts Committee. And they get a proper going over from the Public Accounts Committee for decisions that are theirs to make. Um, But they also, I suspect, get a proper going over for decisions that were ministers to make, but nonetheless they carry the can for. Um, I think the reason you don't disclose the advice that civil servants give in ordinary circumstances is the same reason you don't disclose legal advice, which is that in the end, that advice will be franker and more honest if it's given in private than if it looks as though one day it will become public. And that will not make for better decision-making. And in the end, everything we say in this debate has to be focused on how we improve the quality of decision-making in democratic government. We all agree that it will be improved if standards are higher, but I'm not sure it will be improved if every element of the advice that contributes to a decision taken will one day be ventilated and made public, and everybody knows who said what to who. Um, I get transparency, I'm in favour of transparency, but there are, I'm afraid, limits to the value of transparency in good decision-making. And both as a lawyer and, indeed, I'm sure as a civil servant, there are reasons why you give your advice in private, and then the decision is taken and defended in public. And I think we have to retain this division of responsibilities in democratic government between ministers who make choices and are accountable for them, and by the way, get the credit when things go well, just as they get the blame or should do when things go wrong, and civil servants, lawyers and various others who are contributing to that decision-making process, and giving as much information and input as they can. If you don't retain those divisions, then I think you'll end up with worse decision-making, not better.
0: I'm going to take two last questions, and then I'm going to let everyone on the panel have a final word. So there's one just here, Penny right up front.
3: Thanks. It's one for Jeremy or anyone else, actually. I just wondered, Jeremy, if you think that the Conservative Party as a whole has had the of reckoning that may, maybe many people feel it needs to have about the Johnson era given that he actually polled strongly than Liz Truss or Rishi Sinek during the leadership election we're, we're talking about after the Johnson era and yet we all know that there could be a, a Johnson era too but irrespective of that given the fact that many of your members maybe even colleagues don't really feel he, he did anything wrong isn't, isn't it time that that needs to be discussed and maybe here at, at this conference is the place to do it before trust can be rebuilt. Oh, I'm, I'm from the Guardian newspaper, by the way, it's Ben Quinn. Thank and you. Just
0: one last question,
3: there, then... Hi, I'm Daniel Borsa from Oxfordshire Conservatives, and I'm also an author on customer Experience. And I was interested to ask the panel about their view on what we could learn from the business world um, to improve it, because it's not like just one thing's going to be a, you know, magic Golden and silver bullet to, to do that. So across three areas. So, so Jeremy mentioned about you know the support behind the scenes that the WHIPS office do. Um, what does the panel think about actually bringing in a chief HR officer that would then have proper professional support? I think my second point is on expenses because I think that gets blown out of all proportion if you're going to attract a higher calibre of people to serve constituents. I think the the media has a role in in completely blowing expenses, which in a normal way of life, if you're in business, you you have there are reasonable expenses to do your job. And I my third point is about the role of the media. So in the recent leadership ele- um, when you know with all the resignations with Boris, a today journalist was trying to get one minister to resign on air, which I think is completely unethical and completely unprofessional. So what's your response to how we could perhaps correct that.
0: You, Tim, I realise I didn't give you an opportunity to answer the last set, so if you could wrap everything together that would be
7: great. Well, I'm, I'll pick up on, um, on Daniel's points there, because I think there's a lot in there. I mean, I, I would love to hear what Jeremy thinks about Chief HR Officer for MPs. I don't know uh, how, how that would go down, but you're right that there is a lot that can be learned from the business world. Um, Nigel Boardman, who was uh, tasked, he's a partner at Slaughter and May, I think, he, he was tasked to do a review of um, government's management of lobbying after the Green Greensill affair, after Cameron had been found to be lobbying, and he looked to the corporate world for inspiration. He came up with lots of ideas where um, he was saying, you know, government as a whole, civil service and ministers, can learn from how things are done in the private sector. One of the key themes that he pulled out was a, I think he used the phrase, a kind of culture of compliance, where you are expected to show that you are abiding by the rules and there are people who are checking on that. And that applies to civil servants as much as it applies to ministers. And I think... It's another thing that we're waiting for the government to respond to. The Boardman Review is over a year old now. We don't know what they're going to do. But that attitude, I think, is, is, a, is a great uh, a great idea. Um, I don't know, others will have thoughts on the media, but I think I was having a conversation with a couple of journalists yesterday and they were saying how it feels like everybody in, in the political world is kind of hooked on the drama. You know, since 2016, there's just been this kind of relentless... Um, excitement in government and politics and actually i don't know how you do this but maybe we all just need to kind of take a step back and have a deep breath and you know a cup of tea and just try yeah exactly and just try and you know calm, calm down a little bit and not as you say encourage people to resign on air or um you know always be searching for the kind of the sugar high of whatever the latest drama is but now that we've kind of dialed up to this level i don't know how we go back down
4: I'll give you the final word, Jeremy. Uh, yeah, I I, mean, I think those points about the um, uh, expenses, the chief HR officer. I, I, I think um, one of the things is clear from a number of the kind of scandals that have happened is uh, how little support there is for MPs. Um, I think they could, doing, they could be doing a lot around. Um, you know, they're essentially all running um, uh, kind of small businesses. Um, which gets recorded as expenses rather than actually just kind of office costs. I think a lot more could be done uh, around the kind of parliamentary authorities providing much more institutional support to <coughs> MPs, whether that's in terms of HR support. And there's, some, you know, there's been some developments around that, employing directly the staff, for example, taking around some of those burdens, allowing MPs actually to do what they're supposed to do rather than spend their time necessarily doing appraisals for support staff and and, and dealing with those issues I think it would also improve the quality of management um, around some of those stuff so anything I think around better support um, for MPs and taking some of that burden off them would be a good thing and I know the Institute uh, uh, Institute for Government have looked at issues around ministers as well you know you become a new minister with very little uh, by way of support and uh, what you're kind of expected to do so I think a lot of stuff there would would be good generally um, around how how government operates. Um, And I think my my final point would be that what I've always kind of failed to understand on this issue of trust with politicians is what we've actually seen, that point about the reckoning of, of what happened to Boris Johnson, was that at the end of the day, this doesn't actually make for good politics. It may look good in the short term, you know, you may make a decision that you think is good politics at that point in time, but inevitably it comes back to haunt you. And and, and inevitably these issues led to the downfall of a a prime minister. And I think that sense of politicians understanding actually this isn't just the right thing to do, uh, because that's what should drive them, but actually it's a sensible thing to do in terms of politics about rebuilding trust and what that means around the institutions including the independent advisor of uh, on ministerial interests is, should should make good politics, um, uh, and 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 should result in them having lengthier careers either as ministers or prime ministers if they if they get that stuff right.
5: Well, maybe just to try and wrap up Daniel's point with Ben's question on, on the sort of reckoning and the, and the media and the sort of febrile atmosphere that we've we've seen over, over the last um, couple of years. And, yeah, of course, there have been elements of the media that have got very uh, excited about elements of this over the last couple of years. But if just think very quickly back to, to the, um, the Sue Gray report on Partygate, and the narrative at that point in time was right it's time to move on. We've done this now. It's time to move on. What the evidence then showed us is that It was actually very difficult to move on when there were still relatively threadbare protections for standards and integrity at the highest levels of government and and ultimately that's led to a a change of prime minister and we still need to fix that and fixing that is a political judgment now as much as all of the other political judgments that are being heavily debated here this week and you know politicians and political parties are rightly proud of their achievements and work hard on their offer and their position to the electorate but i think what what we, we see through our analysis that so often what parties and politicians are judged on collectively, as Jeremy rightly points out, not necessarily as the individuals, is where they stand uh, and the assessment of how they act, how they, stand, how they stand on standards and conduct and the attitudes towards these things as, as much as policy, which is why it's so important that these reforms don't get swept under the carpet.
2: Uh, yes, I, I think that question about the business world is, is really important and I think, I mean, someone who, you know, discusses a lot with compliance professionals in, in the anti-bribery space, you know, they always say, tone from the top, absolutely crucial, Not no tick-boxing compliance and that you have to have a dynamic system which ad- addresses risks. Um, and so I think all of those are really, really important lessons. And as Tim said, you know, Nigel Waldman did suggest a compliance unit for government, which has yeah, yet to be um, implemented. Um, so uh, I, I think that's um, really welcome. But I think, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, in the last kind of few years, there's been this constant feeling when you talk to people, it's, it's just another scandal around the corner. And I think that until we sort this standards picture out, it doesn't matter who's in government, we're going to get another scandal around the corner Um, and I think rebuilding trust is, you know, we have got to take Sir Jeremy's recommendations and the CSPL reporter and and really make it serious business. Jeremy, final word.
1: Right, so um, has there been a reckoning on Boris Johnson? Yes, that's why he's not Prime Minister anymore and um, I suspect those who believe in political second acts have spent too long reading or perhaps even writing Churchill biographies because it hasn't happened since him, and I'm not convinced it's going to happen now, but who knows? Um, But, look, I I think what you discover as a politician, especially those of us in Tina will recognise this, who've been in office and then not in office, is that the waters close over your head faster than you ever thought or hoped, and the world moves on without you, and uh, I therefore think what this party needs to do is it needs to look to the future and it needs to get on with a new Prime Minister pursuing their own agenda. But that links to some of the points that that Daniel made about what what we need to learn from business and where um, the media come in. Um, So look, I mean, I, I think there is always something to learn from business. I think sometimes we're in danger of overplaying that comparison though. These are two different types of enterprise actually, private sector businesses and public sector governments. And you can't read across everything from one to the other. Just ask Archie Norman, who tried, and it didn't work. And there's a reason it didn't work. So you do need to recognise the differences. But um, if it's any comfort, it may not be, um, the idea of an HR function for the Whip's office was tried while I was in the Whip's office, actually. Um, But we discovered that there were a number of obstacles, not the least of which was, if you try and have a sort of structured career development discussion with a member of parliament, you discover that some of the factors in their career development are not entirely standardised. Let me (laughs) just put it that way. Um, So it it didn't quite work out as we perhaps hoped. Um, But but it is, as Dave says, um, as much as anything else about recognising some of the pressures on politicians, and some of the skills and abilities they're expected to pick up quite quickly. So you are, as Dave says, expected to effectively run a small business to become an employer quite possibly for the first time. And although there's plenty of support in the mechanics of that, um, the idea of being an employer is new to many Members of Parliament, and not all of them take on the role with similar success. Uh, Now, I've got a lot of sympathy for the ability to learn these things fast and how hard that may be, but my, my, limit, my, ability, my sympathy is limited because, in the end, these are matters of judgement. And you are basically hired as a Member of Parliament to have good judgement. That's what you're there to do. And your judgement on how to handle your members of staff should be good, as your judgement on how to handle your constituents and the questions and issues they bring to you should be good. And you don't really require years of experience as an employer to know that you don't harass, abuse or bully your staff and that you treat them well. So there are limits, I think, to my sympathy on all of this. Um, And on expenses and pay, well, look, um, uh, I think the difficulty is that if you um, don't run the sort of expenses system that we run at the moment, you would probably have to increase MPs' pay dramatically, and there isn't exactly a market for that. Um, And we now do have a much more independent and much more structured system of approving expenses that works much, much better than the days of the expenses uh, scandal which I remember um, without any fondness and I remember in particular coming to the view that the only way I was going to manage this process was to say to all the local journalists right I will give you all the paper copies of all my expenses since I've been a member of parliament I'll leave them on the table you can sit there for as long as you like if you can find anything in its print of interest go ahead that was the only way I could see of making sure people realised that I was being transparent back to the word of the morning um, and one particular journalist, bless him spent four hours coming through every single page and in the end he called me and he said, I've got you. He said, look this doesn't match. See that? Doesn't match that. And I said, do you know what? You're right. I have underclaimed by 50 pounds. You got it. Uh, and, and, and in the end, transparency is what you require to reassure people that you're not doing anything wrong. But let me just finish with one thing on, on the role of the media because Um, I I do think the media has a part to play in all of this, and we expect journalists to behave responsibly. Completely agree with Dave in the main that they do. But can I just say, and this is a pet peeve, um, the one thing I really think we need back is the long political interview. And the reason I think we need it back is that it is very, very hard for a politician who doesn't understand their brief or who hasn't thought through their big idea to survive a 40-minute interview. It is very easy for a politician in that category to survive a one minute and 30 seconds interview. And we really need to get back to having our confidence built that our politicians know what they're doing, that they have understood their brief and that they have understood the consequences of the actions they're proposing to take. And we need journalists to support that effort by conducting interviews that are not about gotcha moments, not about putting silly questions that will give you a brief soundbite for the evening news, but a proper development of a conversation about whether you've got the right idea and whether you are implementing it properly. And I'm not too young to remember, and most of you are not either, the days where John Humphreys or even going further back, Robin Day used to do exactly that. And it may be that it's not entirely coincidental that that was the last time people thought we had serious players in political office because you could see that they were or perhaps that they weren't based on the degree of scrutiny that they were getting. So, for the journalists in the room, I'm up for it and I would hope many of my colleagues would be too. Stop giving us a minute and 30 seconds and start giving us 45 minutes and then politics and government might be a bit better for it.
0: I'm afraid I've run over horribly. Uh, Thank you all very much for coming. Thank you to the FDA for sponsoring, and I will take your round of applause as having already thanked the panel.